everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and today we have a bit of a different episode for you, and one that, honestly, I've been really looking forward to for a while. One of the things that's always been profoundly interesting to me personally is the both personal and psychological relationship that artists can have with their work. From finding new sources of creativity to actually managing their own internal psychological states through the creation of art, there's always seemed to be such a rich territory and an interplay between the internal world of the artist and the external expression of that art. This has definitely been my personal experience when I've engaged in various forms of creative work. And I can think of few better examples of this than today's guest, an incredible singer-songwriter, producer, and composer that you might know by the name Sleeping At Last, Ryan O'Neill. Ryan released his debut album, Capture, alongside his brother Chad O'Neill and bassist Dan Perdue in 2000. Since then, he's released three other full-length albums and a wide variety of other creative solo projects, EPs, and singles. You may have heard his music on TV shows and in movies like The Twilight Saga, Grey's Anatomy, American Idol, and The Fault in Our Stars, among many others. Over the last seven years, Ryan has worked on his Atlas series, which is this pretty incredible high-concept series of songs that's based on and inspired by little things like the origins of the universe and all the life that lies within it. Atlas 1 began with 30 songs that were inspired by the origins of that universe, and then Atlas 2 continued with 25 songs inspired by involuntary human development, which includes things like life and emotions and intelligence and a personal favorite of mine, the Enneagram of Personality. And then Atlas 3, an upcoming project, will focus on voluntary human development, what we do with all that we've been given, and not coincidentally, of course, that's a big focus of this podcast. In 2016, Ryan started the Sleeping at Last podcast, where he explains the process and inspiration behind his music, one song at a time. And it's a personal favorite of mine, and I really couldn't recommend it more strongly. So, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much. What a, what a very kind introduction. It's, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's like, it's so cool for me personally to be talking to you today because I've been both a fan of your music and your podcast series, particularly related to the content on the Enneagram, which really reframed my understanding of and relationship with my own personality and point and typing inside of that system. That's awesome. I'm I'm delighted to get to get a chance to kind of walk through all of it. Yeah, for sure. And so I'd love to kind of start by grounding this conversation for our listeners who yeah. may or may not be super familiar with your work as Sleeping at Last by kind of sharing your personal story a little bit, like where your love for music came from, and then more recently, what your kind of thinking was as an artist leading into the whole Atlas series. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been playing music since I was about 14 years old. Mm. I, I first fell in love with the guitar and uh, asked my parents to, to um, oh, I guess I asked for it for Christmas, and they were kind enough to, uh, <laughs> to, to let me have one. And it was an electric guitar, and I just kind of, from that moment on, I, I just knew that I wanted to create something with, mm. the, with this instrument. And that led to the piano, and that led to me singing. Actually, singing was kind of by necessity. I joined a couple local bands when I was uh, 14, 15 years old, and um, nobody, nobody wanted to sing. So I had mm. to kind of figure that out. Wow. <laughs> um, what a, what but, a fortunate way into it. Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I was. Uh, yeah, my voice has changed drastically since then, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I, I would actually say even before that, uh, the, my first connection to music emotionally was uh, I would always be deeply connected to the uh, the ballad of every record. Like I'd, mm. I, you know, my my first my first CD ever was the Lion King soundtrack, and <laughs> and there's a couple couple beautiful ballads on there yeah. that would always, you know, it would make it would give me this. Uh, 
this physical response of, you know, my, the, the hair mm. standing up on my arms. And I, I just was at a very young age. I don't even remember how old was just kind of blown away by something invisible moving me physically. I just loved mm. that idea. And I think as soon as I found a guitar and kind of a, it was my first way into that vocabulary uh, of music. I, I just grew deeper and deeper in love with, uh, with the craft of songwriting and, um, through my teen years, just kept trying to get better as a songwriter and as a musician and, um, trying to just figure out how, how can I use this as a form of expression, um, more than just hopefully looking cool for friends and (laughs) (laughs) girls and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that led to this, uh, this deep admiration for the craft of songwriting, as I said, but also, um, it led to a career in music. I, I started a band uh, actually, with the name Sleeping at Last, with my, as you mentioned, my brother and my best friend. And um, we got signed at a very early age, age to a record label called Interscope Records. And so we had this kind of, um, you know, otherworldly experience uh, working with Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. And um, that was that was all when I was about 17 or 18 years old. And so it, that gave me the confidence that maybe, maybe I could actually do this. Uh, for work one day, maybe this could be something that I spend my life doing because that's that's all I desperately wanted, and so it gave me the the affirmation I needed to keep going. And then, yeah, I've been writing albums uh, for several years past that, and then eventually it became a solo project, and uh, that is uh, kind of brings us to where we are now, which is um, I, I love writing in theme. <laughs> I just, yeah, clearly. I, I think it it probably blends my my love of film scores and um, and just my visual way of thinking and, and writing. Uh, I think it gives me this jumping off point creatively to, uh, to, if I, if I know I'm going to start a song called sorrow today, I know, uh, Mm. that it can't have a lot of happy melodies. (laughs) So I love that. I love that jumping off point. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of a, that's a probably terrible overview of, uh, (laughs) I I mean, I thought it was great. 15, 20 years. One of the things you said there was this feeling of being moved physically by something that's invisible. And I think that that's, Mm -hmm a wonderful way to kind of frame music in general, but maybe your music in particular, because I think that it's fair to say that, I mean, geez, a a huge amount of your work, if not all of it, has an incredibly heartfelt quality to it. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of it leans, I mean, maybe a little in the more... I'm trying to find the right way to put this, like sorrowful, sad, you can say super like expressively sappy. That's fine. <laughs> emotional in that kind of very sweet and somber way direction. And for starters, I'm wondering if you think that's a fair characterization. Oh, and 100%. Then, okay, yeah. awesome. And then kind of secondarily, is, is there something about that emotional space that you felt kind of particularly drawn to? Absolutely. I think now as I'm an adult, I can look back and realize that this uh, this has been my, my journal from the very mm. beginning. That's what I fell in love with in the first place was... Uh, it, like I said, it, it is this vocabulary. It's the, it's a way for me to process my emotions and my heart in a, in a place that is still very, very vulnerable, but also it has some, some, some form to it. I, mm-hmm. I, like it has, obviously a, a pop song needs to have a verse and a chorus. So that it almost is like this, this comfort or this security blanket <laughs> in the middle of me processing and kind of pouring my heart into a song it still has this container that that can be helpful and I think that that's what I was gravitating towards when I was younger and of course now as I recognize it I I see the uh, the beauty of that and then I also see the challenges of that which is a realization I've come to more recently that if I'm processing my heart so exclusively in music uh, it means that I might not be processing my emotions and my feelings outside of music because I've kind of oh. given myself all the permission in the world to be like, yes, of course I'm in touch with my emotions. I write them all out. Mm. Listen, listen to th- 
these 100 songs. <laughs> and then I realized that, oh, that, that kind of has given me permission to turn off a little bit of that part of me in, in my everyday life as a, as a dad and as a husband and uh, even a friend. So I've been, I've been trying to bridge those two things. Wow. Well, for starters, I think it takes a lot of just personal introspection to kind of see something like that. And it kind of makes me wonder about something that I've been thinking a little bit around recently that I would love your take on because, yeah. you know, obviously you perform under a stage name, Sleeping At Last, yeah. um, a, a kind of pseudonym. And I've been thinking about the idea of stage names and performers a lot recently, particularly the example that keeps on coming back to me is the Beatles with Sgt. Peppers, how mm -hmm. they needed to literally adopt this like alternate reality version of themselves to feel right. kind of safe to produce their most out there and some would say like best work most creative work i mean i would certainly claim that that album is you know in my opinion their best album yeah and so i wonder about the existence of that name which i know has a whole origin story behind it but do you think that it allows you to be like more vulnerable to keep a little bit of separation between kind of yourself and the people you're performing for you know, that's an amazing question. I, I don't know that I've ever fully thought that through, but I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mm -hmm. think it actually, it gives me, it gives me permission. And I, even in the way I don't, I don't do a lot of uh, photo shoots. I don't usually involve my face in any yeah. of the like materials of, you know, content for, <laughs> for my music. It's, it, every song has its own artwork and I, I kind of look at it as like, oh, that's a, that's a space for, for art to happen. And so mm. uh, it's almost like this, as I'm pushing the vulnerability and the, the pushing my heart into all the music, I'm also kind of pulling my, my, my identity back a little bit too. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's, that's probably given me a safe space to, to be as vulnerable as I am in my songs. Cause that's, that's one of my, the main rules. I think even as a, you know, a 15 or 16 year old, I knew that I wanted to write things that were true to me that mm. I didn't, I didn't want to write fictional stories. I didn't want to write um, about necessarily like, you know, girlfriend relationships or anything like that. I wanted, I wanted to write, like I said, kind of my audio journal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted, like it had to be true. And so I, I think that probably if it was under my, my name, Ryan O'Neill, it would maybe, maybe that would have, maybe those two things would have hit heads. It maybe would have felt a little less safe yeah. <laughs> to express myself in that way. Well, it's so funny. It's like music or any artistic pursuit. I think that what you're speaking to here is how autobiographical the whole thing is. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, I think that any good art has at least a little bit of honesty to it in terms of the person's so. individual lived experience, right? Yes. Kind of in line with that, there's this question at the end of one of my favorite movies, which is Almost Famous, mm. where the kind of main character, who's this young boy and kind of playing a journalist and then slowly becoming one, sort of asks this great performing artist a question that's become a bit of a trope and kind of the music industry in general. Yeah. And, and it's this idea of, do you have to be happy to write a happy song and sad to write a sad song? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And right. so kind of asking you, because so much of your process leans towards that more kind of solemn music. Do you feel comforted by it? Do you feel like you get sad from it? Like, what's your relationship there with it? That's a great question, too. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I think I think my, my initial answer would be that I just generally respond to music that is emotional mm -hmm. and, and on the sadder side of the spectrum. But I do feel like it must connect to some part of me that wants to communicate in that way, too. Like, I'm, I'm sure, it, like I said, it 
and we'll get into the Enneagram, I'm sure, in a little bit here. But um, I'm a type nine. Mm-hmm. And for anybody that doesn't know, that's the peacemaker. And I don't do very well with conflict mm. and <laughs> just in general. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that sad songs are, like I said, it's a safe space to maybe have some internal conflict. <laughs> you know, it's a safe space for me to uh, explore what heartbreak mm. looks like. It's a safe and and I recognize it as beautiful when other people share in that way, because it's. I was I was having this conversation with a friend recently um, that I, I have a deep love for movies as well. And um, I think what it is, I, I kind of thought before it was escapism that I loved so much about by going to the movie theater. And I think what it actually is, is I, I know I, I, I pay this certain amount of money. I go sit in a seat. I'm not required to engage in it whatsoever other than to think. And no matter what terrible conflict happens on the screen, I know that there's going to be an ending. Mm. <laughs> and I will leave that theater having no responsibility whatsoever to fix that conflict or even be a part of it necessarily. So it gives me this, uh, uh, this, I don't know, this comfort, this, yeah. uh, uh, this, this distance <laughs> from, from real conflict, but it also probably helps me be a little bit more in touch with my, with my own conflicts in my own life and in my, in my own self. So maybe something to do with, with that is why mm. I love sad music so much, but it is kind of a running joke where um, like I'll do, I'll do um, a lot of my music gets used in TV shows and sometimes um, people will commission me to, to do a version of another song, a cover. And uh, it's (laughs) usually the request is like, can you, can you put your, your spin on this song and that spin just happens to be sorrow. <laughs> like, oh, you want me to make that song sad? Yeah, yes. it, it may not be a total coincidence. <laughs> and I, I have tried uh, to write happier songs and yeah, I've absolutely. got a few that, that have eked out. Um, but even, even my, uh, like I have a song, as you mentioned, called Joy. <laughs> and even that song's got some minor chords in it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's gonna, it's gonna tug a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that for a moment, I, I don't want to present this as like the, the mournful hour with Ryan. Oh, here, it is. <laughs> because there's definitely some music uh, that you've produced that is extremely um, uplifting. Oh, Whether really? that upliftingness <laughs> be like purely joyful yeah, or, yeah. you know, a little deeper than that, That's a little true. bit more complex than There's that. There's some happy and endings. Yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you did create these four songs based on, uh, I don't know if you use this language, but the one that came to me was kind of like cardinal emotions. Oh, for... that's great. Yeah. I actually wish I had used that language. I, I just call it the basic human emotions. I did, I did a little bit of study on just trying to figure out because clearly there are other emotions other than just the the four primary ones. But I mm-hmm. liked that. I can't remember. I think the example was you can break fear and anxiety into like the, mm. it's, it's kind of rooted in the same thing. So even though they are different, but um, fear becomes before anxiety. So I kind of, I, I liked uh, just kind of getting to the cardinal, uh, as you say, uh, cardinal emotions. Yeah. So, and there were these four different emotions, mm-hmm. joy, sorrow, anger, and fear. And your songs are always, or I mean, certainly for these concept songs that you've done, like those four, they're always so detailed and thoughtful. And you leave these like incredible literal Easter eggs inside of them, (laughs) like little soundscapes in the background that you kind of only really hear if you're looking for them. And I know that you did a ton of research preparing to write each one of them. Uh, In your blog post related to the song on Sorrow, I found that coincidentally, you actually linked out to one of Rick's videos talking about taking in the good. Oh my gosh, that's Which amazing. was so funny when I found it when I was doing my prep for this interview. I was like, <laughs> such a, you know, great connected experience I to have that. that with you yeah. before we started talking. That's so incredible. Yeah, I, 
That's one of my favorite parts about writing in theme is that I get to uh, just personally learn more about things. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not just sitting yeah. and trying to write a song that sounds good or is even expressing, uh, as I said, it, it is my audio journal, but in writing in theme too, it allows me to explore my inner landscape, but it gives me these prompts, these questions to kind of be mm. like, oh, well, how do I engage with sorrow? How do I engage with anger? More interestingly, I, I still don't have an answer for mm. that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, as it turns out. Um, that's an Enneagram joke. Uh, but <laughs> but that's one of my favorite things is kind of going down these rabbit holes of, of research and, and trying to learn everything I can. And then not only taking that information and um, uh, finding inspiration in something I learn about each of the whatever theme it is that I'm writing about, but I just, I, as you said, I love the idea of these Easter eggs kind of hidden throughout the songs. It's I've been doing it for pretty much since I started writing and recording music, and it, it only mm. occurred to me in the last few years that I should probably tell people about these things that I'm weaving into every song. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, they're like they're they're so detailed and they're so thoughtful, and I would love to hear. Just a little bit more about what your kind of process is like when you sit down to write a song like Joy or Sorrow yeah. or Anger. Yeah, for sure. So I will, uh, I'm always collecting. That's that's sort of my, my first approach to um, to writing music. So whether it's, it's I'll sit at the piano um, on any given day and I will just pull out my, my iPhone and I'll, I'll record just a voice memo of uh, just a chord that happens to... Uh, maybe it's a sequence of, of notes or something that I'll play on the piano that just resonates that day. And then I, without any further thought or um, uh, even work on it, I will just record it and I'll kind of forget about it. And the same thing happens with words and, and just lyric writing in general. I, I have an app that I use called um, Day One on, on my phone and mm -hmm. computer and everywhere else. And uh, I just, I will try to open that up. Uh, I try to do it every day. It does not happen that way. Um, and I will just write whatever, whatever word is, is it could be a single word. It could be just a stream of consciousness. Uh, I just try to write. And, um, again, no pressure on any of this stuff. 90% of it is terrible, <laughs> but I will kind of go back as a, uh, a completely, um, I hear it all for the first time because I don't remember recording any of it and I don't remember writing any of it. So I, the forgetting is such an important part of my creating. Cause I think it allows me to mm. be a listener. Uh, and it allows me to be an observer without having a personal connection to it. That's a great it. line. I love that line. And so that's kind of where everything starts. And so when I know that I'm, I always map out these themes, especially with Atlas, I, I have all these maps of, of what I'm going to write about. And, and as I'm thinking through things, I'll, I'll, I'll come up with some initial ideas. Obviously for sorrow, I knew it had to be heartbreaking, but I wanted it to, um, I wanted it to also be beautiful. And I wanted to make sure that I, I wasn't just, it wasn't grief that it was maybe heartbreak with a purpose and there was hope at the end of it. And hope was a huge, obviously key word in, in the song joy. And I knew that the mm -hmm. instrumentation for joy needed to have something bright and it needed to reflect sunlight and it needed to be as, um, so everything in there is is really percussive and uh, has a staccato type of uh, rhythm to it because I felt like uh, joy is kind of plucky, <laughs> and so yeah, so those absolutely. are some like really really initial ideas for um, uh, attempting to you know before I had a melody or, or a song at all I just knew that okay it needs to it needs to kind of float within this this instrumentation or um, these are just small little ideas so I also keep like a little clipboard. Uh, just a folder of ideas for for each of these songs as I go to, and 
that leads to like the deeper research of uh, whether it's for the Enneagram. I read, you know, countless books on different mm. theories on the types and how they interact with one another and the, the ups and downsides of, of all of these beautiful nine personalities. So I do a lot of learning, which I, which I really love. It, it slows down my songwriting quite a bit, but hopefully it makes it better in the long run. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. And so to kind of take the transition you gave me there, talking about the Enneagram yeah. for a minute, your songs on the Enneagram were just real personal favorites of mine. Oh, and uh, it's something, the Enneagram, that I've had sort of a casual learning relationship with uh, for a pretty long time. And it's definitely my favorite personality typing system. Yeah, I think that what I like about it is how evocative it is and how kind of narrative story driven it is yes. on a certain level. Yes. So to give like the one second introduction to anyone who's not familiar... A really, really quick version of the Enneagram is that it's a personality typing system and generally kind of a model of different personalities that's based on nine interconnected types. Uh, these types are referred to by their number. No number is better than the other. They're just nine different numbers. They're given numbers because numbers are value neutral, so you can't like think of one as being superior to the other. And they're grouped into three big categories, which are instinctive, thinking, and feeling. These categories are largely defined by their dominant, what I'll call like challenging emotion, or you might call coping strategy. There are a lot of different ways to talk about it. Anger, fear, and shame. And if you're interested in learning more about the Enneagram, I truly think, and this is not flattering, that Ryan's podcast, The Sleeping at Last podcast, is one of the best resources out there for it. Oh, wow. Um, and I've included a link to that in the description of today's episode. So what inspired you to focus on the Enneagram specifically and kind of personality types in general? Like, why did you think that was such a, a big part of sort of involuntary human development? Yeah. So when I first came across the Enneagram, I was very skeptical of the whole thing, to be totally honest, and personality mm -hmm. typing in general. I'm like, of course, we want to make people simpler. That's just like, yeah, totally. Why wouldn't we, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And, um, but uh, my friend, Chris Hewitt's introduced my wife and I to it. And he kind of gave this, this beautiful several hour conversation to us of learning about <laughs> each of the types. And I was, I was intrigued, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I mean, it's not a matter of believing in it or not. I just sort of wrote it off a little bit. It's like, mm -hmm. of course, you know, yeah. like I said, people want to, people want to simplify things. And I, I get that. And honestly, some of the things that I learned about each of the types, I just couldn't, I couldn't not see in every relationship from then on. And so it yeah, kind of totally. followed me around um, where it just started. Like It was like the, like I, I, I kind of felt like it was this weird little key that kept turning on all of these different relationships and be like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that is so sixes do this thing or they, they, they are, <laughs> they're so driven by this. And of course, you know, that relationship would have gone in that direction. Like it just, it's, it just started mm -hmm. making a lot of sense of a lot of things. Yeah, so I became absolutely. a little bit more interested in it. And um, with the concept of involuntary human development for Atlas II, I learned one thing about it that Chris had told me that, because I, I think I was asking him like, so where does this, like, is this, are you born with your type? Is it hardwired into you? Or is it, is it something that is a, is a product of your experience? And and he's like, there's so many different trains of thought on that. There isn't like a, a, a for sure, of course, on any of that. And I love that. I was like, so it does kind of fit right in between the involuntary and voluntary. So it yeah, needed to totally. be the last chapter of, of Atlas mm, too, because mm -hmm. it is, it is kind of in that gray area. And for me personally, I, I do believe that it's kind of the hard wiring into us. And I, I thought, mm. you know, after we are given our, our breath and our, uh, our, our senses and our emotions and even our intelligence, 
there may or may not be, whether it's our uh, experience or not, our personality shows up. And I loved that that just kind of fit perfectly into this, this, um, this kind of narrative of, of involuntary human development. So that's, that was kind of, that happened maybe two or three years before I even began writing the songs that I sort of added it to my map (laughs) that I was going to write these songs. And I think I even announced it um, a year or two before I actually got to writing those songs because there was about I think 16 or 17 songs that I needed to write yeah. based on the emotions and uh, senses and things like that ahead of it. But yeah, that was kind of where I came from. It's Chris Hewitts, who uh, who is a guest on my podcast and has been hugely instrumental in if, if I've gotten anything right about the Enneagram, it is uh, likely from his very kind patience and teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to to take that up and kind of share a little about myself for a second, as you said, you're identify as a type nine, yes. which is kind of a, uh, in the framework of the system, it's a instinct, quote unquote, or yeah. anger point. They tend mm-hmm. to be accepting and stable. And as you're saying, a little avoidment. And they're sometimes described as peacemakers because they really want to both connect with other people and to avoid conflict. I, on the other hand, am a type six, as you said a yeah. second ago which is a thinking or a fear point. Um, sixes mm-hmm. are committed and they're security oriented. And sometimes they're described as loyalists to use the language of the Enneagram yeah. because they tend to attach to structures that are outside of themselves in order to avoid their fear of being kind of abandoned or, or left alone or kind of without uh, connection and broader significance. And you give a incredible deep dive into each of these on the podcast. So I don't want to go kind of too deeply into the specifics of anyone here. But I do want to say that for a long time, I really struggled with my personal identity as quote unquote, a sex. Yeah. For starters, I felt like there was a lot of kind of negative view attached to it of these like fearful, anxiety driven creatures <laughs> right. out in the corner, whatever it is. <laughs> right. And I had a really hard time with the moniker of like loyalist. I didn't really know what that meant. And also yeah. I can be a profound skeptic by nature. So I'm like, how can I be loyal if I'm so skeptical? Like that doesn't really, that yes. didn't jive with me at that moment in time. So for starters, I would love any of your thoughts on all of that. And then yeah. also kind of maybe more importantly, did you struggle at any point with being like defined by your type? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I will I will answer both of those things. Um, so for the type six, what's interesting about that is so in my in my as I was writing each of these songs, I had a, a pretty solid understanding of the general gist of each type. You know, like I, I knew that for the type one, I knew that things mattered on a principle level. I knew that, you know, eights. Uh, are are they have a they have a very powerful side to them like mm. so there's there's these several not tropes but they are they are yeah, kind no, of like I would the, say definitely the stereotypes of the yeah. of the of each type and but I will say that six was the only one that when I was about to write it I'm like oh my gosh I don't know anything about the type <laughs> six and I think what I learned I feel like they are the most I, I hate to say it, but you guys are the most forgotten in the Enneagram teachings I feel like you are the uh, and even so much so, and I, th- I think that there's a lot of different um, ideas behind this, but there's the, um, oh my gosh, what are the two? They split the six into two different types. They, uh, they Do you know about oh, this? Oh, uh, phobic and counterphobic? Is that yeah, what you're thinking Yeah, phobic and counterphobic. Yes, exactly. Which always didn't sit well with me because I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, why does six have two types if they're the same motivating driver like yeah. what that's so strange and i think the the more i dove in and, and and even conversations i had with friends that are sixes the more i realized that there's this there's this gorgeous 
courage in them mm. that that's that's the unifying thing like so sure they they might be loyal they might be fearful they might be risk assessing at all times cautious. or not cautious is the language that i've cautious, attached to yeah <laughs> cautious that also is just smart <laughs> you know um but i i felt like the the courage of the type kind mm. of i mean it comes up in in the reading that i was doing but it wasn't the the centerpiece and it should be i really feel like that that should be the thing that people know about the the six in the same way that people know about like the, the nurture of the type two or the mm. the peacemaking of the type nine i feel like the type six is has has unfortunately, uh, I think, been confusing to a lot of different people. Which I I can't help but think that I would assume that if you are a type six and you're reading a lot of these descriptions, that's that that can't help <laughs> like, because it's sort of it's yeah, like a I mean, contradiction. I will say that some yeah sometimes it's like less than flattering. Absolutely yeah. yeah. And of course nobody. Uh, I mean, even the way Chris Hewitt's explained the enneagram, I was like, how, well, how do I know what type I am? And has mm. I, I've always thought about this in 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 all of my research of the enneagram. It's so true that like whichever well read about each type and whichever one hurts the most is probably you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no. I mean, one of the things that so attracted me to the system initially was how it's, I mean, it's moved away from this like a little tiny bit, but at least back in the day, it was described as a quote unquote negative typing system Yeah, where, yeah, the personalities were defined by the characteristics of them that made people wince a little when they hear about it. Absolutely. Honestly, that's what gave it credibility to me because I feel like so many other personality typings that I've come across have been almost permission granting to not change or not improve or not try a little harder. You're just like, yep, well, I do that because I'm uh, I'm this. I'm trapped in this and I can never yeah. improve. Yeah. And I feel like even though any the Enneagram sort of flips it on its ear and is like, no, here's all your terrible parts. And also here's all your really meaningful, beautiful parts that you can strive towards. That full spectrum of like, even if you read the different levels within each of the Enneagram types, that was always... I mean, terrifying because if you read on like the, the Enneagram mm, Institute's mm-hmm. website, it's like uh, type nine is like the, the worst, like least healthy version of the type is like, a, you know, split personality disorder. <laughs> I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, God. Seriously. Uh, as a random anecdote, my uh, my girlfriend, I introduced her to the Enneagram. Yeah. And uh, she loves the different levels of disintegration and integration. Yeah. And maybe not shockingly, she's a three, <laughs> yeah. you know, which may or may not be a coincidence. <laughs> yes, my, 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 my wife is a three. Yeah. And I believe if you look at the, uh, the, the least healthy level of the type three, I think it was like capable of murder or something. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And she's, she looks at it, she's like, eh, you know, could maybe see it. So there I you could go. See it. Yeah, exactly. But in the same way that it shows all of that deep and, ugly shadow it also shows you the 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 beautiful things that you're capable of and that i think is so enriching and and meaningful and Mm. Yeah, that was, just as you said, I feel like it being sort of this negative um, introduction, is that, it, it actually, I think, frames it in, in being a really supportive, helpful tool rather than a way to caricature everyone in your life and yeah. yourself. And uh, what's interesting for me personally as a nine, so obviously I, I did some deep diving into the Enneagram and trying to learn about all the types, but I didn't realize until writing my song, which happened to be the, the last one, um, that I had truly looked at the Enneagram as a typology of eight types, <laughs> like just uh, completely ignoring mm. the type nine and being like, yeah, yeah, of course, I, I don't need to learn that much about myself. I'm here. I am. I know, I know who I am. And, uh, that was not true. And I, I had a very, very difficult time 
doing the research and also um, kind of wrestling through some insecurities of myself and also uh, recognizing that I have pretty much not engaged a huge part of who I am for more than half my life, which is uh, mm. definitely what the song is about. Um, and so it, there were some deep realizations about myself. I kind of had, um, it was very late in the process, but, uh, you know, in writing these songs, I, I, I've talked to a lot of people about the Enneagram and I feel like the common thread and story when people come into, uh, into learning about the Enneagram is that they have this kind of, once they recognize themselves, uh, kind of jumping off of what Chris said, not only is, you know, the one that's least flattering probably yourself, but they, they also have had kind of their heart like broken by learning about it, where it's like, it's a real, it's a really deeply personal and um, vulnerable state to be like, to be called out in that way. Yeah. And I totally. never had that at all as a nine. I was just like, hey, yep, I do avoid things. Yep, I do want everybody to get along. And then when I started learning about it, um, uh, as I was writing the song, you know, a couple years into the, all the research I was doing, that's when I had my heartbreak moment. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is how everybody else felt as they learned about their types. It's not a, not a pleasant feeling. <laughs> yeah. And I think that your music really captures, um, as you were saying, in terms of the identity of the six, like the key characteristics yeah. that you wish that more people were put into touch with, maybe as they learn about yeah. that point or in tune with, however you kind of want to describe it. I think that you did really the same thing with all of the different songs that uh, you put out, and they are all so descriptive and so evocative and have so many incredible little Easter eggs buried in them, including <laughs> using musicians on the tracks who defined as the points and all of these super cool little things that you did with them. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe, and the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. 
As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. We've been talking about it so much that I think it makes sense at this point for us to just play the song for the Enneagram Point 6 for our listeners. So here's 6 by Sleeping At Last. I choose to believe 
That was Six by Sleeping At Last. And, you know, just to be honest for a second, that song gets me every time that I hear it. Thank you. And all of that kind of profound research that you did on this subject, really, um, and I mean that, you know, earnestly, did you take from it any kind of broader lessons about how people relate to themselves or about, you know, the nature of involuntary personality altogether? You know, I I did. I I felt like even before I wrote the songs, I had hoped that I would... I would come into this deeper, uh, this deeper empathy for the people that I know and love, and and the mm-hmm. hope would be to be able to love them better through through learning about them and and writing these songs. And I I don't know if I've quite done that, but I I feel like at least the vocabulary of the Enneagram has been so helpful. And just I've had the deepest and most meaningful conversations I've ever had in my life because of uh, that tool, um, mm-hmm. wh- whether it's with my wife or with some of my my nearest and dearest oldest friends um this has given like it it, i mean speaking of safe spaces (laughs) earlier Mm. as which music is that to me but the enneagram has been that uh, to me as well where it's like it creates this framework where people feel people feel freedom to talk about stuff that they maybe don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about or even want to talk about but i feel like it gives it gives a kind of language to it it gives yeah it, it gives it makes it and I think for me, coming out of um, having written these songs, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but I, I knew I didn't want these songs to be descriptive. I wanted them to mm. be, um, I wanted them to contain everything I could possibly learn about each of the types, but really tell nine stories of redemption over the course of these songs and have, have it be, there's this deep sense of hope, like rather than, you know, of course, appreciating that it is, it is, it can be a really negative tool, uh, but also recognizing that you can hold that and the beauty of the type just as mm. easily. And so that was, that was the, that was the kind of the heart of, of writing those songs was I really wanted to make sure that I wrote a story of redemption. And in order to write that, honestly, I had to do two things. I had to see myself in each of those types, which I certainly did. Um, there, <laughs> there was like a, a joke in my house, my wife, I would, I would come up from working on whatever type song and uh, she would be like, 
you you know that you're kind of being more like that type now, right? <laughs> like yeah. for this last month or two, you know, you've yeah, I can't say I'm shocked. It, it's it's sort of uh you know it's not quite as as cool or serious as like a a method actor, but mm. <laughs> it did I, it definitely like amped up those parts of me, those parts of every type, and and it came out in me, and that was that was actually really I think it helped me empathize um mm. with each type in a way that um was able to hopefully find the redemption of each type, but. Like I said, in doing so, uh, I had to mean it, and I had to I had to really truly recognize it. And I could tell there's a part in learning about each of the types where, where this this like, I don't know, this sigh of like, it was almost like my heart breaking for each of the types as I was learning mm-hmm. about them, mm-hmm. and it it didn't happen immediately for for any of the types. And then there was a point in learning where, if I could feel like this ache all of a sudden for for the type that I was writing about. And I knew that that was when I was able to write, write the song because yeah. I, I felt like, okay, I, I get it. It has now like reached into my, my bloodstream in a way, you know, like I, I'm, I'm I, I feel like I understand the, the, the plight of the type and also the, the motivation to be able to, um, to shine a, a flashlight on the beautiful parts. Yeah. And you, you feel connected to and, and touched by it. And yeah, exactly. If people are looking for kind of any practical takeaways here, I mean, there are at least two that stick out to me from our conversation so far. And the first, as you were saying, is the way in which a, um, a language or a space, whether that be, whether that be a stage name or that be the title <laughs> of a personality typing system yeah. or that be whatever else can really create a container that you can talk about challenging things more easily inside of, whether that yeah. be inside of your relationships or about your own human nature. It might be a little easier for some people to think of themselves as like, oh, I'm being a little sexy right now, as opposed yeah. to telling <laughs> myself, wow, Forrest, you're really being like held down by your fears of what the bad things that might happen right, if you take right, that right. big swing in life. You know, that yeah. feels just a lot more personal than being able to take like a little bit of separation between it through understanding it more through the vehicle of typing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's really, you know, touching and and true in the work that you're doing here. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to hear. It was it was the most difficult and rewarding work I think I've ever done as mm. a as a songwriter or even a person. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to hear that. And you know, on behalf of all the people impacted it by it, really appreciate it. Oh gosh, thank you. I I did realize uh, <laughs> as I was writing, you know, obviously as I said, I announced that I was going to be writing these songs for the Enneagram types and it did not occur to me until I started the first song how how arrogant of me to assume that I know the perspective <laughs> of nine of nine types other than myself and uh that I think that that like realization like because people started uh I just started seeing comments like I can't wait for my song and I'll be like mm, oh my gosh oh that's no that's a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah nobody feels that way about my song you know taste or my song sorrow or you know yeah. like nobody has like a an, an ownership of that and it, it made me realize that I, I really needed to do the work if I was going to try to have a chance at honoring each type and so thank you for for saying those things because it means a lot to hear now that I'm done with it <laughs> that it wasn't a total swing in oh this. no I don't think so at all and you've just taken such in general like an interesting and kind of non-typical approach to your art What's accompanied that, I think of what you're kind of speaking to here, is occasionally a lot of pressure. Like, it's a lot of pressure to (laughs) say, I'm going to create nine songs dedicated, each of them, to like one-ninth of the human population. Like, whoa, that's that's a little (laughs) heavy. Um, And I I think that inside of that is just an obvious statement of kind of 
you know, to put it a certain kind of way, uh, of sort of courage or, you know, Thank bravery you. itself, as you were kind of referring to earlier with the type six. And have there been moments where you've been kind of intimidated by your own scope of work? I have to imagine the answer is yes. And if so, <laughs> like, how did you cope with that? Yeah. Um. So kind of the, I used to write albums. And what that meant before was I would put out an album every three years, which meant I really only wrote four-ish songs a year. <laughs> wow. And yeah. um, around, I think it was 2010 or 2011, I just had this, this deep, like just trying to figure out what, what am I doing? Like, what, why am I, why am I doing these things when it's far away from the things I love? And what I really love doing is, is writing songs. Why am I doing, why am I doing that so infrequently and calling myself a musician or a songwriter? Mm. And that kind of gave birth to the idea of, I'm like, I wanted, I wanted a project that could challenge me in, in a way to not only write more often, but also to be more vulnerable and share, um, quicker than I had ever done before. So at that, I think 2011, maybe it was 2010, I, I began a project called Yearbook. And, and the concept for Yearbook was uh, there was no theme. Uh, the only the only kind of structure that was, was there and was very um, overwhelming <laughs> was I was going to write three songs every month uh, for a year. So that'd be 36 songs in total. And those three songs would come out on the first of, uh, of the following month. And mm -hmm. so uh, that was the probably month two, I had realized like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, writing <laughs> like a was... completed song every 10 days is like incredible way, output. Way too much. Uh, this is this is so much. I, I bet off way too much. And um, I, I think the, the beautiful part of that project for me, I didn't have kids at that point. And uh, my wife and I had just gotten married and she had a very time consuming job too. So it kind of worked in that in that season of that year to, to I woke up at, uh, I think, eight or nine every morning and began working and then would finish at eight or nine at night and then spend an hour together and then do it all over again. <laughs> and so Eesh, yeah. it was, there were, there were long days of, of just writing. And what I learned about that was when I pushed through what I, what I used to call writer's block, I would realize on the other side, there was, there was richer work. Like I felt mm. like I don't have anything else to write about. I like, I'm done. <laughs> like this is like the third month into the project. But I, if I kept my butt in the chair and I kept writing, I, I realized that the, the work that I was most proud of um, kept finding its way uh, with that persistence and with that patience. And so that taught me a ton about writing, but it was a really daunting task. And I think the, the coping of that, um, honestly, I didn't want to let anybody down. I, I knew when I started that project um, that when I announced it, because I started, I took subscriptions for it too. So I, I wow, definitely, okay, I yeah. had a financial uh, committed. Uh, accountability. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I knew that I didn't want to let anybody down and that kept me from, from straying from my, my schedule. Mm. Um, and the coping was just, I, I think the, this one rule that I kept having in my head, uh, which was, I have to be proud of whatever song I put out. That's it. Mm. I, it doesn't have to be like the most, like I didn't want to release a bunch of demos. So uh, the, that was the only criteria was I had to be proud. And I, there were a couple songs where I, I was not, and I did not release those and I started over, but that criteria, I think kind of gave me it, like recycled, uh, energy for me, you know, mm. like, and also, uh, something I didn't know before that project, um, was that in releasing that much music that frequently, it allowed me to kind of recharge off of the feedback I was getting. So I'd yeah, release totally. the songs that I just worked on that month, you know, within a couple of weeks of, mm -hmm. of finishing those songs, people would be hearing them and, and um, were very supportive and kind. And I think that that kind of filled the tank back up to do it again. But anyway, all, all that to say is that project 
truly carved out the path for me um, for Atlas, and um, that was a Atlas is a is a longer form project, but at the same and it has themes, but um, uh, it is it is in the spirit of yearbook where I'm releasing a lot of music frequently, and that keeps me I think deeply in love with writing songs, and it keeps me pushing through the you know the boundaries of writer's block for me, and um, but it is it's work, <laughs> and, I, and I and I enjoy complaining like the rest of us, yeah. Yeah, I'm part of what you're saying there is just sometimes by committing yourself to something you're you just go well crap i actually have to do this now so if you really want to get some huge project done sometimes the best way to do it is just to kind of suck it up and tell people hey here's what (laughs) i'm going to try to do and now i'm kind of stuck with it because i'm committed to it that's exactly it and especially i mean not to pull everything through the enneagram but as a type nine disappointing people is like Mm. the the cardinal sin (laughs) so i uh it my actually chris had told me he's like it's so funny man your career is like a a type nine life hack (laughs) (laughs) you found all the little ways i somehow figure accidentally like by announcing these projects i've i've you know the risk of disappointing anybody versus mm. uh you know giving up on my thing uh, just was uh, that will always win out i don't want to let anybody down <laughs> so <laughs> keeps me working yeah no absolutely so to talk about your future projects just like a mm-hmm. little bit here as we wind toward the end you have another series of songs coming out uh atlas three where you've said that you want to focus on voluntary human development as I said at the very beginning, what do we do with all the things we've been given? Yeah, which was beautifully, like, your introduction, by the way, I, I might just copy and paste that into uh, any interview I give. Oh, <laughs> great, like, perfect. Like, tell me about this new project you're doing. I'm like, hold on, and then I'll play that sound clip. I'm like, man, <laughs> that was beautifully described. Seriously. Thank you. I was impressed. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, not entirely coincidentally, that's basically what we focus on on this yes, podcast, yes. is what do we do with this, like, weird, fleshy body that we've been left on this planet with for whatever yes. reason. <laughs> and I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and particularly like both the concept and some of the key themes you're planning on exploring yeah. and just like where you are in that process. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway through the mapping out, which was, which mm. means that I, I have at least a handful of themes that I know I will explore. Uh, one of those is love. Another one of those is, is belief or doubt. I feel like those things will have, I mean, really, I think as, as I was thinking about Atlas one, two, and three, it, it will be a trilogy uh, at this point. Maybe mm. there'll be some addendums down the road. <laughs> it is a, it is a, you know, Atlas is a collection of maps after all. So as, as I discover things, I might add some more maps to it, but it's a living project. It is a living project, but it, it, it has the shape of a trilogy. And what I, what I get really excited about is if you look at Atlas one, it's really, even though it's the origins of everything, it, it also is just the past. And so you look at Atlas two and it's the present, it's what we're given, it's everything that's mm-hmm. here. And then if you look at Atlas three, which is what I'm kind of, you know, hammering down now, um, it is the future. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. So I love, I love that aspect of it. And this has been an interesting one in contrast to Atlas one and two, because uh, the ideas of like, what do we do with all of this is such a huge question. And it really like, it could, you could fit a, a million themes around that. And so it's yeah. trying to hone down which ones are the, the key ones in, in the same way that I, I, I tried to, you know, find the, the basic, or as you said, the cardinal emotions. I want to try to figure out what, what are the cardinal, what next uh, feelings and experiences we can have. And so love seems like one of the biggest ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, great place to start. Yeah. Hope, faith, uh, things like that. And so I don't, um, I don't have the exact map out yet, but I, I, 
it's it started like actually this week has been a a fun development with it where I'm starting to like okay I see all the pieces coming together and I I remember this happening actually for uh, for Atlas one and two like where I had the the very rough outline and then all of a sudden these things that seemed very fractured all of a sudden just clicked and made sense <laughs> like learning about the Enneagram being like oh that I that's perfect that's it that's right in between voluntary and involuntary slotted right in yeah, there yeah, no, yeah. absolutely so it's I coming mean, together so looking forward to it really Thank looking you. forward to hearing the work in the future and uh i mean i'm sure that you'll you know keep people updated through your blog and things like that yes. about where you are in that process and to kind of bring this thing full circle for a second yeah. if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself maybe as that 14 year old working on yes. uh, singing for the first <laughs> time or whatever it might be as somebody who spent so much time uh, thinking about these various topics working on these areas of human development just working on your music in general what would you want to tell that person? Oh, that is such a great question. And I'm embarrassed to not have like, <laughs> my first, my, my first reaction is like, oh, no idea. Zero. No, no pre-can <laughs> answer I'm is just great. as confused we love now no as I was then. Yeah. <laughs> Confusion will still be there when you, when you get older. Yeah, no, I think that's actually deeply true. I was, I will say that like on a, on a career level, um, when I was, when I was starting out and even, even in the first few years of, you know, signing a record label and kind of what the hopes and dreams that were kind of part of, part of that whole experience. I think I'm, I'm in retrospect, so grateful that my career has, my journey in music has brought me to this place where I get to really deeply explore the things that I love and that I care about. And I don't think that I would have been able to do that had I gotten everything I wanted <laughs> mm. in in my career. You know, like there's a lot mm-hmm. of hopes and dreams of that, you know, we're, we're selling out, you know, stadiums and being, being you two or <laughs> something yeah, no, totally. that I think, um, I think that there, there are a few people like, you know, like a band like you two or the Beatles that are writing these meaningful things too. But I, I, I feel like there's a, uh, there's a gift in, in, where my my career has led me to being able to just stop everything and decide to write 36 songs and <laughs> and over the course of a year and I, I have been privileged enough to um to to have the support around me to to be able to do that so uh, I probably would have just been like it's okay to not get everything you want you know like the it's actually better <laughs> in the long run I think that's a a incredible lesson and it's great it's a great thing to leave people with here. So, Ryan, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It's been really wonderful. Oh my gosh, Forrest, thank you. And this is this has been a gift to me. Thank you for for such thoughtful questions. Seriously, it's uh, it's inspiring. <laughs> 